Hi, everybody. My name's Ian Lake. You may remember me as Tolor from Star Trek Discovery, and you're listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome back to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. Today, we're chatting with Ian Lake, who you may remember best as Tolar, the nephew of Star Trek Discovery Season 3's big baddie, the evil Orion, Osira. Tolor appears in Scavengers and again in The Sanctuary, and has some great memories of his time on set, working with Sonequa Martin-Green, Michelle Yeoh, David Ajala, Doug Jones, and Janet Kidder. He's also got some truly epic tales of the makeup routine he went through to become this very green alien, which, believe it or not, was a whole lot more complicated than you might expect. Outside of Ian's time in Star Trek Discovery, you may recognize him best from his roles in shows and films like Flashpoint, The Divide, Beauty and the Beast, Bitten, The Murdoch Mysteries, The Girlfriend Experience, Mary Kills People, and The Art of Racing in the Rain. We'll discuss some of those things and what he's learned through his career on today's very enlightening episode. It ain't easy being green, just go ahead and ask Ian. But before we jump into our interview, I want to ask you, are you following Trek Untold on social media? It's the best way to keep up to date on who's going to be the next guest on Trek Untold and to learn all about the other cool things that are happening here. So if you're on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, go ahead and look up Trek Untold, all one word, and give us a follow and a like. If you'd like to help support the show monetarily, Go ahead and check out teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold to check out some of the merchandise we have available. This includes t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, sweatshirts, stickers, and a whole bunch more. So go ahead and check out teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold. You can also support our show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you become a paid subscriber to Trek Untold, you'll get first access to the show and a chance to ask our guests questions on future episodes. But most of all, please subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it or watching it. And if you've already done that, please also leave a review and a rating if you can. Leaving ratings and reviews helps increase the visibility of podcasts on platforms like iTunes and other places like it. It shows that you're listening and that you like it, and that other people who are interested in the same subject are going to probably like it too. It helps us grow, it helps us get better guests, and it helps us keep bringing this amazing Trek Untold show to you. If you're already following us or have supported us in any other way, thank you, of course, for being a part of the Trek Untold family. There's a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, and we're very grateful that you chose us to listen to. I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D printed Star Trek inspired toys and replicas for fans of all ages and toys of all sizes. But you'll hear more about them a little later on in the show. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on the other side of the line, you guys have seen him in Star Trek Discovery and a few other things we'll talk about today. We've got Ian Lake with us. Ian, how's it going? It's going great. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thank you so much for being here today. So, Ian, I want to ask you the first question that I ask all the guests on Trek Untold. What is your earliest memory of Star Trek? You know what? That's that's it's funny because I've been thinking about this because I've always loved Star Trek, but I've never I've never I would never call myself a Trekkie. I've never taken my fandom that far. And I actually think my earliest memory of Star Trek was watching Star Trek four. 
the one with the whales, which I don't know where that I don't know where that holds up in the in the realm of Star Trek films. I don't imagine it's one of the best, but for me, it's the most memorable one just because I think it's the first exposure to Star Trek that I had. Um, and then, of course, I got got into watching reruns of the original series and stuff with my dad growing up. But yeah, I'm pretty sure it was the the humpback whales in San Francisco. Star Trek Four holds up. That one's a pretty big Does classic. It? That's a beloved film. Yes. Okay, I'm glad. I'm glad that my favorite Star Trek film is beloved. <laughs> Hello, computer. I don't uh, remember the reference, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, all right, that's, that's all right. We'll get you there one day. Don't worry. You're part of the community I think I now. Need, I need to rewatch it and, and remind myself of what because it's it's one of those things that still exists as a distant childhood memory. You know, like I, it's my it's probably 20 years since I've seen it. <laughs> I would call you a double dumbass for not knowing that reference, but you wouldn't know that reference either. So make no difference. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, man. I'm just, I hope you have a lot of guests on here that don't, (laughs) that don't get the references. Uh, It it happens all, but it's, you know, we don't do that, but you know, it's not a big deal. Plenty of people have come in and out of Trek who've either known it or don't know it. Uh, What matters most is that you love what you did after you've done it. And I think it's safe to say you have. Oh yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and your your background. I'd like to know where you grew up, what your parents did, and what little Ian wanted to be when he grew up. Oh, that's nicely put. Um, so I grew up in Vancouver. Uh, um, I'm Canadian, and uh, I live in Toronto now, but I grew up on the West Coast. Um, born on a, a little island called Salt Spring Island, and I moved to Vancouver. We, we moved when I was three. So I spent my pretty much my entire upbringing there and until i was about uh 18 when i when i went to university and then eventually moved out out to this this side of the 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 continent um my parents uh my dad was in construction and still is he was a project manager for a big big construction firm in vancouver so he would sort of you know be in charge of a giant big three-year you know, commercial renovation of some kind or some building or, um, so that was his job. My mom was a teacher. Uh, she just retired a couple of years ago, so she's not that anymore, but yeah, so she always had her, um, summers free. So, you know, we did a lot together as a family in terms of, uh, just activity and shit like that, camping trips, et cetera. Um, but what did little Ian want to be? I mean, I always, I always dreamed of performing. I was always the most passionate about being creative, being, um, you know, putting on like making costumes, putting on little plays and, and, you know, painting pictures and all that stuff. So I sort of was always on that, that track. It was never when I was a kid, it wasn't like what I thought I would do for a living, but it was always what I was most passionate about. It wasn't until I was like 18 that, I started to really investigate it seriously as a career, but, but it was pretty much always the thing that I, that I c- cared most about. So, so were you a yeah. theater kid back in those days? Yeah, I was, I was big time theater kid. It's funny. I was a, I was a theater kid and I was really into rugby and I initially went to the university. I chose the university I went to because of their rugby program. Uh, this, uh, it was UVic, the university of Victoria. Um, and they had the best rugby program uh, arguably in the country. And, and so I went there cause I was planning on playing rugby at a very high level. And, uh, you know, I was, 
trying to in high school i was always trying to strike that balance between like being involved in the play and also being like one of the captains of the rugby team which is is not a really easy thing to mesh and always like my coach would get mad at me if i really needed to be in rehearsal and my my director would get mad at me if i really had to go to practice and like they sometimes they somehow allowed me to like miss miss enough of each one, but to still be involved. And, and then when I was um, going to university and I chose this university because of their, their athletics program. And I thought, well, what am I going to study? And a friend of mine had had her parents had gone to that theater program as well. Um, And so I investigated the theater program and realized it was a a nice, a nice program, very credible. And so I decided, all right, I'll call, I'll, I'll study theater. So in in the theater program, they called me rugby boy. And in the rugby program, they called me theater boy. And eventually which one of, it was like, which one of these am I going to do for a long time? And I knew that rugby, uh, my body would just probably fall apart by the time I was 32. And, and so I just quit playing rugby and never looked back. Oh, I think you definitely made a good choice there because otherwise it wouldn't have had Tolar. That's for sure. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, or you just would have had a a, a subpar tolo or played by someone else. <laughs> yeah. So what would you say would be the most valuable lesson that you learned when you were doing the theater program that you continue to use this day in your acting? God, the most valuable lesson. I mean, I would say the most valuable lesson I have learned in my the- in in my theater career, not just like the theater program that I went to is that ultimately when it boils down to it, my job is to be a storyteller. You know, it's not my job to be a star or a big famous person or, a, or like the center of attention or the most important part of a TV show or something like people watch TV and they go to see theater and they go to the movies because they want to hear stories. And that's what we connect to. And that's what makes something really resonate and, and you know, Star Trek has got great visuals, but what's kept it around for decades is the stories, right? Like the human stories, even though it's all about aliens, it's a, they're human stories. And so that's, I think been, I think that's way more obvious when you're doing live theater and you have people there to hear the story been told. And especially when you do Shakespeare and you're telling the same story year after year for hundreds of years, you just realize that that's, that's, that's the main focus. And so I, I, I take that to heart and I, I approach every job from that focal point And I try to, you know, make my choices based on how does this tell the story? What story does this tell? Uh, and so, yeah, it's not every project you get where everyone else is really interested in the story. Sometimes people are just trying to slap together a TV show, but, uh, I think that's the biggest benefit of starting out in the theater for me. And by the way, I saw that you were in that production of Macbeth and Stratford. Uh, did you do a lot of Shakespearean training? Lots. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I studied Shakespeare. So I, I left that universe after two years at that university, which I was at because of the sports program. I left to take acting more seriously. I went to a conservatory program called the National Theatre School, which is in Montreal, Canada. And there was the first time I ever got to like really immerse myself in like classical text and mainly Shakespeare. And I found that not only did I really love it, but that I I had a knack for it. And, um, and I understood a little bit about how to approach, like, you know, there's some people where Shakespeare is just another language to them and they just can't wrap their head around it. And that just wasn't my experience. Like it made sense to me. So after, 
after I finished that school, I pursued a bit of a, you know, I pursued classical theater. I was interested in auditioning for Shakespeare plays and projects. And then, and so I ended up doing uh, many years at that, at that, at a Shakespeare festival where I ended up playing Macbeth. Um, so yeah, Shakespeare has probably been the biggest element of my career to this point. Yeah. And we've spoken to a lot of folks who have been in Star Trek who were classically trained, who did a lot of Shakespeare in school and even after, and even in modern contemporary times. And uh, we found that they're very much attracted to things like Star Trek because the roles are very Shakespearean. There's a lot of epicness to them. Uh, there's a lot of big gravitas and drama within those roles and those characters. Uh, for you yourself, oh, when yeah. you approach any film or any production you're in, do you look at it through the lens of your Shakespearean training or is that something you kind of just don't necessarily need to wrap around every single character you do? I mean, what, if I'm being totally honest, which I, why wouldn't I, 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 I've been noticing myself saying that sentence more and more and wonder why we say that sentence as if we're not being totally honest. <laughs> no, if I'm being totally honest, um, it's, it kind of gets in the way in most TV and film jobs. Most TV and film jobs don't need you to dig into that reservoir of abilities that you, that you hone when you're doing Shakespeare and classical theater. Um, oftentimes it's too theatrical. And so, and a lot of TV is, is kind of about mumbling and, and give and putting as little on it as possible. And most of the TV dialogue is really just like, some meat and potatoes stuff. So it, it's actually a funny thing that a lot of people that come from a theatrical background, especially a Shakespearean background, will will struggle to have to unlearn that for most TV and film work. But it's not the case whenever you attend, audition for, well, most sci-fi stuff, but I just think specifically the way Star Trek has approached sci-fi, um, the way they have approached storytelling ultimately that is that is very 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 about the human experience and and so that and then it's and it, but it, and it has a heightened language but there is still something colloquial about it you know and there is still something quite um uh, um um what's the word i'm looking for approachable or attainable about it accessible is the word <laughs> and so um it, i think it's exciting for Shakespearean actors to get to try to 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 get to to work on a on a Star Trek format and a, or a Star Trek script because it all of a sudden allows us to 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 dig back into that bag of tools and it's like it was so exciting for me to be um, I've spoken about this on on another podcast but the, you know the creation of a character like Talor is larger than life. It is very much like the creation of a Shakespearean character. It's you're wearing a costume that is not, you know, a normal thing to wear. So you have to really be able to, you know, fit into something unusual, but make it look like it's your clothes and like, and to be able to, um, you know, uh, speak that language and make it sound normal, but also do that with prosthetics attached to your face and still articulate and all, all the skills that are kind of hammered into you when you're, when you need to fill a, fill a whole theater. So, yeah, I think that's why Star Trek has gone to so many, um, classically trained actors to, to trust them with their bigger parts. But I also think for those actors, it is, um, a rare opportunity in TV for us to really utilize those skills, you know. Do you remember what your first professional acting gig was on TV? Was that uh, Flashpoint? 
That was Flashpoint. Yeah. How was yeah. that experience for you? Was it a little bit different from being on the theater? Yeah. I mean, it was night and day and luckily it was something small for me to just kind of get my, 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 my feet wet in. And I was so nervous and I was just there for one day. I had six lines. Um, I was, a I was a medic who was wrapping up the wound of this, of this uh, soldier that they were interrogating. And I just so happened to have a piece of information to help their case. So I was like, I didn't have a name. I didn't really matter in the story, but I, I was there and I had a, I had a moment, you know, and it was, it was like learning acting all over again. I had already spent, I think maybe five or six seasons at Stratford at that point. And, and so I wasn't new to acting, but I felt like I was relearning it. And a lot of it was like, just about, uh, just don't act, just throw it away. Just be like, oh, yeah. Like I remember one of my lines was um, the bullet went right through because they said to the soldier, oh, it looks like you got lucky. And I said, yeah, the bullet went right through. And I just remember practicing just like, yeah, the bullet, the bullet went right through, the bullet went right through, the bullet went right through. Like just as, as, as nothing, as nothing as I could, you know, as opposed to like when you have Shakespeare and you want to really like, like lean into it. So um, yeah, it was different, but it was also the first taste where right away I was like, I want to do this. I want to play in this, in this arena. I want to play in this medium. I don't not like, it's not like theater's better and TV's worse or vice versa. They're just different mediums and they're different animals. And it, the first time I got to do it, I was like, I want to do more and more and more of this. And I want to get to a point where I'm comfortable here and I'm not nervous and I'm not, you know, like I am comfortable on stage, but that was new and, and totally nerve wracking to me. So. Were you channeling a bit of your Stella Adler that day and kind of doing the line again and again and see which ways you can make it different? <laughs> you know, I've never really learned what's what Stella Adler's like actual training approach is, but yeah, that's totally exactly what I was doing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you also were in a show that I feel like I need to start talking about a lot more often on this podcast, uh, especially guests who are in Canada. Uh, you did an episode of the Murdoch Mysteries, which was the episode oh, of the accident. Oh, yeah. And yeah, that seems like accident. a really interesting set to be on. I mean, it's it's a very different set, I imagine, for you though. Doing what you've done, it's probably not too far out. But uh, yeah, how'd you like doing uh, Murdoch Mysteries? You know, that was a lot of fun, and and that was a u- unique episode because it was all done in real time, and it was all the murder got solved on the spot that it happened. Unlike, it's usually an episode where there's a crime and. And they they call the detective and he comes and looks around and then he interrogates people in his office and then he pontificates back in his study at home over a bottle of wine or something, you know, and it just takes a while. And if you're on there, you're usually just for a day or two getting interrogated in the office. But because this was something that happened in an outdoor set, it was a car accident and it, and it had to be solved in a in in within the hour of the episode we were all like an ensemble for this one episode and it was shot outdoors and there was horses and there was all these old cars. It's like set in 1915 or something like that. So actually that's another show where you do kind of get to use your theatrical. um, And David Hammond was also in that episode and he's a, he was on, um, I think he was on Stargate SG one. So he's a big, he's a big, like he's a, he's got a big, he's big in the sci-fi fan world as well. And he was, the guy that my character murdered. <laughs> Sorry. Oh no, I spoiled it. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, it's, it's, it's a funny, it's a bit of a silly show. You know, it's not, they're not really digging into a level of like seriousness or gravitas. So the characters end up being a little bit kind of goofy and larger than life, but there's, there's fun in that, you know, like it's not a show that I, I'm not 
I don't watch it, <laughs> but it's a lot of fun to play in that world. And it has a big fan base. Like in Canada, it's got a massive fan base. Um, and actually the woman who wrote the books that the show is based on is my neighbor here in Toronto. And, and so now that I've done the show, she sort of stops me when we pass each other. <laughs> oh, hello. When we, when we walk by our, with our dogs. <laughs> And we can't do this interview, by the way, without discussing the art of racing in the rain, which I think it's safe to yeah. say that was probably real. That was kind of a big breakout role for you, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the role I I played isn't isn't a massive role in in the story. It's funny I keep mentioning the story, um, <laughs> but he does he he does mean a lot to the main character, and he's in the whole thing. And for sure, it was a big break because it was my first feature film, and. Uh, it was a big feature film, you know, like it was, it was a real big major Hollywood film. Um, it didn't get seen that much, just, it didn't do, it didn't do great. But at the time that it happened, it was, yeah, it was a big deal. And it was also, you know, it was interesting because I had never heard of the book and then I, I booked the movie and was like, okay, I, I'm going to read this book, I guess. And, and then I, you know, called my sister and I said, Hey, yeah, I just, um, I just booked a movie and she's like, great. What is it? I'm like, well, have you ever heard of this book called, um, the art of racing in the rain? And she's like, I just finished that book like two weeks ago. It's incredible. She said, she tells me that all, all these people in my family, it's like one of their favorite books. I never even heard of it, but of course I've read the book. It's an amazing, if anybody hasn't read the art of racing in the rain, go do it. It's narrated by a dog and it's basically about this this race car driver and his dog and the life they live together and the really difficult things that they go through and how, when if you're a race car driver and it starts raining, you, you, you still have to try to win the race. And it's basically an analogy for life. Like when life dumps on you, how do you maintain course? And it's beautiful, beautiful book. So yeah, shooting that movie was like a, a, a wonderful experience. Everybody involved in that movie uh, from top to bottom were just grade a people that it was just a really pleasant pleasant experience yeah and the one thing i see when i look up the movie online is everybody's talking about mike and tony and how beautiful they are together uh, oh really yeah so it's like one of the big things one of the biggest uh compliments i've seen throughout the whole movie is this, the, the chemistry that you guys have together uh work really? with andre joseph yeah have you seen that who's who says that where <laughs> <laughs> I got to send you some links, but yeah, people really, I've seen like entire articles just about how, how great that you guys are together. Articles. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, please send me. <laughs> I got to send that to my friend Andres. Yeah. Actually it's funny because Andres Joseph who plays, who plays Tony. So basically, uh, you know, for the listeners out there who haven't seen the movie, um, the main character is this race car driver and he gets a puppy at the very beginning of the book and his, his best friend, Mike, um, is uh, sort of the person who ends up helping him take care of the dog the most. And what's interesting is in the book, Mike is a gay auto mechanic, which I is only mentioned once. And it's not really um, anything that's explored or fleshed out, but I just always found that to be uh, a lovely little rare occurrence like that. I don't, I've never met a gay auto mechanic. I don't know. It seemed, it just seems, um, against against type you know and and his husband was this guy named tony who was also obviously very much involved in the story and they changed that for the for the for the movie they made mike and tony the two best friends instead of 
you know, to give him a, to give him a, th- a, a second best friend and have it be a trio. And the dynamic was really great. Andres Joseph is just a, this beautiful human being. And he and I are complete opposites in terms of personality types. So we, we actually click really well. Um, and, uh, and we would just joke on set. I would just always make jokes about how, how he's actually, he's secretly my husband. <laughs> and, um, and uh, what was interesting was that in the, st- in the movie, there were, they weren't ever saying that the character was not, was straight. They would just never explored his sexuality. And so uh, the director was like, if you want to be a gay auto mechanic, you go right ahead. And I was like, you know what? That's, I just will. Thank you very much. And, and so, yeah, Andres and I became friends doing that, that shoot. And we're still, we're still good buddies. And, and uh, um, we still hang out if I'm in Vancouver or we see each other in LA sometimes. And I need to, I need to hear about these articles about how great we are together in this movie. because I didn't know that existed. <laughs> yeah, I think there, there's definitely some subtext that a lot of audience members are definitely getting through it. I mean, it's unfortunate that you guys didn't really get to fully explore that character, I guess, as directly on screen, but it was there. So people seem to do it. That's yeah. great. That's yeah. great. No, I mean, they do, they, they do end up being a, quite peripheral, even though they are, they, they're very present in the, in the film. They, the story, the, the, the story never investigates who, 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 their lives at, at any point. So I'm sure there'll be some, maybe some fan fiction. Who knows? And <laughs> yeah, we're, we're too busy hearing Kevin Costner, the dog narrate. Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hello, everyone. I'm Armin Shimmerman. Perhaps you know me better as Quark from Deep Space Nine. As your favorite Ferengi, I'm here to promote a sale. It's not self-sealing stem bolts, but my new novel, Illyria. And the first book is called The Betrayal of Angels. Some of you may not know that aside from being an actor, I'm also a novelist. My newest novel is a mystery set in 1583. Its heroes are the historical characters of John Dee, who was a spiritualist, a book collector, and a spy. With him is an unsuccessful playwright named William Shakespeare. Their mission is to investigate a nobleman who happens to be Count Orsino from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. The book employs comedy, history, and fantasy to tell a page-turner of a story. It reads a lot like Sherlock Holmes or like one of my favorite shows, Homeland. Please check out my website, 
at www.armandshimmerman, get the name right, .com, or you can get it directly from my publisher at www.jumpmasterpress.com. You can buy it either as a paperback, a hardback, or an ebook. So why don't you check it out and judge for yourself? Or better yet, give it as a gift to someone. I know they'll appreciate it. Uh, disclaimer, no Latin accepted. We now return to Trek Untold. All right, so Ian, let's go ahead and jump into some Star Trek discussion right now. So you were Talar right. in two episodes of Star Trek Discovery. You were in Scavengers and then The Sanctuary. So when we've spoken with other actors who've been in Discovery, they say that the auditioning process is extremely secretive. Uh, so mm-hmm. I'm curious if you have that same experience as well. Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah, a story I've never told. So because I live in Toronto where, where Discovery is shot... I'm obviously going to audition for it more than the average person. Like there's actors in New York and LA and Vancouver that audition for Star Trek, but I I imagine because they would have to travel, they probably, it happens less, but I've probably auditioned for Star Trek. I want to say at least 10 times um, over the seasons. And the first time was um, uh, this one Sunday, I get an email from my agent asking me if I'm, uh, if I have a, like a demo reel that I can send him, that's just some clips of me acting. And so, so I do. And then he writes me back and he's like, okay, do, do you have, um, do you have anything happening next week? Like Monday through Wednesday? And I said, no, no, I'm good. He said, okay, sit tight. And I said, uh, all right, what's going on? He said, I might have a job for you. I'm like, Okay. And then he calls me later that day. It's again, it's a Sunday. I'm just not used to hearing from my agent on a Sunday, you know, <laughs> like, and, uh, and then he calls me later and he says, okay, so you can't tell this to anybody, but the th- reason why I'm calling you is because it's Star Trek. And I don't know what happened, but they were, I think, uh, having to do some emergency last minute casting. Um, and they were going to be going to camera very soon. And, and I know that there's a lot of stories about how the initial inception of Discovery was like tricky and there was just a lot of changing decisions. I don't really know all the dynamics of it, but I understood that they did some casting and some recasting and it took longer to get started than they planned. So it made sense that maybe there was somebody they, they needed to cast. And so all of a sudden um, he says, it's Star Trek. I'm going to, you're going to get these sides, sides in the acting world are what we call the script. When you have an audition, it's just a few pages, a few, a couple of scenes, you're going to get these sides. Um, they're going to come from you from the casting department directly, which is not usually the case. Usually I get it just from my agent and in, in a PDF and I'm like, Oh, okay, this is very exciting. And so I wait and I get this email and it's this whole thing that I have to sign an NDA uh, before I can open the email, and then I open the email, and it's a link to a web, to a, a, a a piece of software that allows me to view a script. But if I take a screenshot of it, it self destructs. If I uh, I can only open it on one device, so I, if I open it on my laptop, I can't then open it on my phone. And and it's like this will self destruct in twenty four hours which I've never experienced before, right? Like normally you just get a script and you go to an audition, but especially because Discovery hadn't even aired yet and they hadn't, you know, nobody had seen anything. They were being extremely secretive. And so I, it's, and it's very like just a general bridge officer saying bridge officer, 
I, sir, like damage report kind of stuff, you know, like, I guess it, I imagine it would be like, um, Patrick Quachtoon's character, uh, Reese, like this type of stuff that he has to say. I don't, I, I don't, wasn't, I don't think I was auditioning for that part, but, but, uh, so I did. So I, so I, I had to like memorize this thing without being allowed. I couldn't print it that you're not allowed to print it, you know? And, uh, and then I go into the audition the next day and, um, uh, I have to give my driver's license in order to get like a paper copy of the script and I go into the room and I do the audition and they say, and and, it, and the casting director is somebody I know really well. I've seen her many times for other shows and she's cast me in other shows. And, and, uh, and so she says, okay, that's great. Now, can you, we need to see you cold read this script. And so they give me an, another two pages to see how well I can just like, rattle off some space talk and big words and stuff. And luck, luckily for me, like I, that's not hard. So I do that and they're like, okay, great. And then I get out of there and I get a phone call from my agent about 20 minutes later saying, okay, they're telling me they might need you to be at the production office at 6 PM for a potential costume fitting. And I'm like, oh my God, they're like, we're, they're going to get back to us about whether or not they need to see you at 6 PM. And I was like, holy cow, this might just happen. And then 6 PM came and went and I didn't hear anything. And that was that <laughs> it wasn't me. They didn't, they didn't choose me. Um, and I heard from a friend on the show that they must've ended up instead of casting someone random, I think just shifting someone that was already maybe cast in a, smaller bridge roll or something like that. And just, just jump them over, which I think is something that they do often on a show like that. If they have a role to fill, they end up just, Oh, well, we've already established a character. We could just actually give them this storyline and stuff like that. So that's a, that's the biggest story about the like level of secrecy. That's the highest level of secrecy. But then I, in the subsequent times that I've auditioned many times, it's been the same scene of the bridge officer talk. So they, they just give you this generic scene to see how you can handle that speech, that, that kind of talk. And then other times it will be a specific scene about the character. Like my Tolor audition. I tell the long versions of stories. My Tolor audition is, um, was his name was Tolor, but nothing else was the same. It was specifically just a scene where a guy in a position of power had a female captive and was interrogating her, but she kind of had the edge on him because she was saying your boss isn't going to be happy when they, when she finds out what you've done. So he was in a position of power, but he was like, kind of on the losing end of the argument. That was the scene, which is, kind of the core of what Tolor's nature really is, you know, like of he has power, but he, but it's totally empty. And, and, um, and so that's how they were able to audition it without like, none of the dialogue was the same. Um, there was references to Lorel in the scene um, to uh, maybe like mislead to think it was a Klingon story or something like that. And, and uh, so, yeah, it's a lot, a lot of cloaks, cloak and dagger, you know, don't feel bad about giving us the long story here. Uh, it wouldn't be Trek Untold if a story didn't go 10 minutes at least. So yeah, more is Good. always better here. <laughs> Good. I like it. That's my, that's my style. Um, uh, you're, you'll edit what's irrelevant, you know? Can you tell us a little bit about the makeup process once you actually did book the gig? 
Yeah. Okay. So um, what's funny is I have um, I, I have a nice uh, a relationship with one of the people that is a charge of um, in charge in charge of not in charge but is involved in um, in casting in uh, at CBS in LA, and um, he had written me before I knew I had the job to say to say that my name had just come across his inbox for, for a role on discovery. Um, and he was sort of just giving me the heads up that I was probably going to get the part. And, um, and that was really cool. Like that was nice. I, at that point I, I had auditioned for Star Trek so many times that I knew they were interested in me. Like I knew they were looking for something to fit. And so he had sent me this email saying, um, I said something like fingers crossed and he said, Oh, it, it looks good. Get ready for a lot of prosthetics. So I had, yeah. So I had a, I had a heads up that I was going to be wearing prosthetics. So my first time going in was a, uh, a head cast. And so that was basically my first time on set on their, on their, the lot in Toronto, walking around, trying to find, find where I go, who do I talk to? And then I found the prosthetics truck and I met these guys who I didn't realize I was going to end up spending like 70% of my time with because the prosthetics team is, you know, the three hours you start your day with. And then the thing needs so much upkeep over the course of the day that they're just kind of always over your shoulder. Um, so I met these guys, uh, Chris and Hugo were the two, the two guys that m- were mainly in charge of Talor's look. And uh, they did the head cast, which is a crazy experience if no one's ever done it, where you basically like get your entire, everything like except your nostrils, just completely covered. And you just sit there for like, I would say probably 45 minutes while they put layers and layers and layer of this stuff. And you just have to go into a Zen mode. I think some people deal with some claustrophobia when they do it. Like some people kind of like can start to panic a little bit inside this thing. Cause your, your eyes and ears and mouth are all covered. And, but I, I don't know. I didn't, it didn't bother me. I just kind of like tried to like meditate and Zen out. And so that was the first process. And then a week later, I went back in for a test. And what was interesting was, you know, because the Emerald Chain had been explored as an Orion and Dorian syndicate. And I think they were still figuring out who's going to be Orion, who's going to be Andorian. So I, I, I think that when I went for my um, head cast, at that point, I was told Andorian. And so I was like, cool, I'm going to be blue. And then when I came back to do the, the, the test, they had changed it to be an Orion. And, and, um, and I don't know why I, I imagine, you know, like it probably had to do with exploring the character of Rin and making him the one Andorian in that, in that part of the story. And, and then having the, I think also Emerald is a green color. So uh, the Emerald chain being a kind of a green a green operation run by a green lady, I think is a nice choice. And, um, uh, and so I, I went and I did the prosthetics test and that was really cool because I didn't know what it was going to look like. I initially thought because I don't have hair that like 
I would probably be bald. Most Orion males that we've seen have been bald in over the history of Trek, right? So, and what's interesting is like, there's not a lot of significant male Orion characters in, in other franchises. It's mostly been women that, you know, and like slave dancers, but just women in a like strong position. And, and especially because like females in the Orion, they kind of, in in that race, the females kind of do, do hold the power. Um, and so, yeah, so they put it on me and it was really interesting because I, I was loving it, loving it. But then I was like, well, what's going to go on here? And then the, the Ryan Reed, the head of wigs came into the truck with the wig. And when he held it up to me, it looked kind of, it just looked dumb. Like it looked, I just was like, what are they doing? And then he put it on my head and it was, I just thought like the most perfect design choice for him to have that kind of hair, which was so against the type of the, of, of a, of a big, bad, heavy dude. It was very much boy band hair, very, you know, like, and with like streaks of green and, and bra and auburn in it. And like, and so that was the first time I got to look at it. And, and then what's interesting is then I, I had to go into the office to, to see the, the executive producers and Olatunde, who's sort of like, is the, is the guy in Toronto that is, is sort of having the final say on most things. And then he has a look and he, he checks it out and his sort of knowledge of all things Trek is quite absolute. So uh, he sort of comes and investigates me. Like they really take care and they really have this attention to making sure every level of executive producer is getting to look at something to say, yes, 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 yes. Down the line. And so he looked at it and he said, he actually, what he said is you're going to make a great Orion. Um, um, cause he, it, there's something about the way that mask just kind of like gave me this really meaty, meaty face. And, and, and like, I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a strong guy, but it, that thing kind of just took it to a heightened level. And, and then they took me to the set where they have the corridors of the discovery where that's the sort of lighting that is, you can that's what the lighting on cameras is going to be like. So they took me there to take some photos to then send to LA to send to Kurtzman and Michelle paradise and to get the approval from all those people. Um, and uh, so it's like layer after layer of, of attention to detail. Um, and then the only thing they decided to change was the eyebrows at that point, they put the, you know, they didn't like the eyebrow and that was it. And, and um yeah. So, the, and then, so that, that was like a long process before I had ever even been there to film anything. And so what was great was that by the time I showed up for my first day of filming, I had, I knew my way around the buildings. I, I knew the, I knew the guys, I knew the crew. I, I had had the chance to meet Michelle and Sonequa because we had rehearsed the fight together. Um, we spent like a half, half a day in the morning, just really working the choreography of that fight. Cause it was pretty involved with two separate fights going on that had to intersect. And, um, so, uh, yeah, so the whole like lead up to shooting was so different from what I'm used to because you normally just don't have the luxury of time on most shows cause you don't have the budget. So, uh, the fact that Star Trek ha takes that time to just really execute properly, like it, 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 it was, and not, not only that, but then all the choices that all the creative choices that were being made 
I would like finally see them and just go, wow, this is awesome. You know, and my first costume fittings too, with Gersha Phillips, like when I got to see the fabrics that they were dealing with and like that jacket is actually like scaled, like fish scale leather. Like it is really like, it's, it's like probably the same type of stuff that they're, they're using on like game of Thrones and stuff like that. You know, like it was, it was, it was really cool to show up and see what they were like giving me to work with. I've spoken to a lot of other actors on Star Trek shows who have done the prosthetics. They've done the heavy makeup and they all say that the minute it clicks for them is when they finally see themselves in the mirror. And that's when the character kind of all comes together. Did you have a a similar aha moment with, with Tolar? My, my aha moment was the wig. Um, That's a crazy wig. It is a really cool wig. And it, and it does something like, like, so the, the, it's interesting because the prosthetics go on gradually. Right. And you get to sort of, you get to see, because uh, what happens, what they do is they will, they would glue, um, like they would glue basically like right here first and then let it kind of settle on my face as naturally as it could. And then bit by bit, they would pick up a piece and glue under and like every part got glued. And so what's interesting is it's, it's sort of this loose image of Tolor that then bit by bit just sort of suctions into your face and you start to see the cheekbones take shape and the nose and the bridge of your nose take shape and the strong jaw kind of finally go on. And so what was interesting about that was it wasn't, the mask was never aha because I got to sort of slowly watch my face change, but the wig just pops on. And what it also, the wig also hangs down like right on the edge of my of my eyes, the top, the top of my eyes and kind of gave me this, it just sort of, it just, it just showed me how Tolor looks out at the world. And it just told me, I already had a really strong idea from the internal side of who Tolor was, but the wig is, I think the strongest visual aspect of him. And the moment it went on, I, I literally like, I could not have been more gleeful because I, I felt like the the wig designer was in my head. Like I felt like he knew what my vision of the character was and, and, um, and even, even more so because he, he made a choice that I probably wouldn't have come up with. Um, And so, yeah, that's, it, it really like every day that I got the look on Tolor came to life when I put the wig on and, and then there was just no, like, you couldn't not be a piece of shit. Sorry, I don't know about language on this show. You couldn't be a dirtbag. You couldn't not be a dirtbag wearing that wig. And and he's just really like an irredeemable character. You know, like he's he doesn't possess any really um, commendable qualities. Uh, uh, he's not smart. He's not nice. He's not uh, just. He's, he's, he's not talented. He's just, he's just a one of those guys that that continues to climb the ranks even though they possess no real abilities you know so the wig yeah the wig was my aha for sure so how long was the shoot schedule for your scenes um well i was in so the first episode uh scavengers the first episode i was in that was a pretty hefty shoot schedule i think i shot like seven days for that one episode which in in any tv land is a lot uh um especially if you're not the lead 
of the show. Like usually that's the amount that, that, so, you know, I know Sonequa was, I think probably shot 11 days for that episode. So, um, but, uh, um, yeah, and they were long days because it started with three, three and a half hours of of prosthetics and then another 45 minutes after working to get out of the prosthetic. Um, that would always make my days relatively long. Star Trek Discovery has a really great work schedule where they have a they have a cap where they do not work their crew past, I think it's 11 hours. And no matter whether you've got the scene shot or not, you stop. And that's really great because I think it allows everyone to maintain the level of work that they're doing. And it allows people to feel like they're being respected and treated as human beings, which then I think makes them bring a little something extra to their job. And um, like when people have dignity, when they work, they do so much better. (laughs) And, um, and and that made my life easier because, you know, the 11 hours, then you add, you add lunch and you add um, four hours of prosthetics work. And my days were generally, my days were 14, 15 hours um, most days. And it's a long time to stay in that, in that whole outfit and that prosthetic. And when it, whenever it would come off at the end of every day, that's when the exhaustion would hit me. Cause it, it's just all bottled up for the whole day and then they take the mask off and that's when you realize that like, Oh my God, I can barely keep my eyes open. Um, but they're really fun. And the people on that show are wonderful. Like I didn't have one unpleasant encounter with any people in, in any department of just, a sh- and nobody was rude. Nobody was short. Nobody was unnecessarily abrupt. Everybody sort of has a, a real, I think, appreciation for what you can get out of work when everyone is respectful. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah. Didn't mind the long days. When I first saw the episode, uh, I didn't realize just how much makeup there actually was on the character. And so now hearing right. this and also seeing the behind the scenes video that you put up on your social media page, uh, mm. I was really impressed to see like really how much of your face was covered. So when it comes time to actually shoot scenes, how does this affect your acting and what you do with the character? Yeah, you know, that's a really great question. And that was a lot of my joy to explore too, was I had never played with prosthetics before. I've done a lot of theatrical exploration with mask work though, um, you know, and and I've, I've when I was in theater school, uh, we worked a lot in, in like character mask. At, and those are ones that are just like, like papier mache and they don't, they're not glued to you and they don't move, but it's just all about how, how with your body. And I mean, this is why Doug Jones is Doug Jones is because what Doug understands and what he's understood his entire career is that the thing on your face comes to life by how you move your body. And that, and that there's something you can do with how you tilt your head when you speak and how you, um, how you react to certain things that if you know the, if you know the, the shape and the, and the personality of the thing that it, you're wearing, then you know what it needs and what to bring to life. And like, I mentioned this on, on the strange new pod podcast that like Saru's face is, there's not a lot of movement. His mouth just opens open and closed, but he can't, he, you can't really smile in that with, with that Kelpian mouth. And and uh, his his eyes are 
you know, he's wearing these contacts, but if you watch like his head movement, like he does all of his emoting and communicating and even just allowing people to, to, to hang on to what he's saying by how he moves his head. And then you add to that, the physical, the big physical aspect of the character that he's given of the way he waves his arms when he walks and, and the way, the way his hands sort of move when he's like contemplating stuff. Like he, isn't limited by the fact that his face can't really move. And so I won't lie. Like I watched him, I watched his work to be like, and I asked him questions too. When we were, when I had the chance, I I asked him about, he didn't really, he doesn't think he's, he knows anything. He's like, I don't know. You know, like, he's like, I, he doesn't think of himself as some guru of prosthetics, but he really is. I mean, there is no one else. And so I, I, um, I spent a lot of time in the mirror, just sort of like seeing what, when I do this, what does my face do? You know, like when I, when I smile, do I, do I, do I get what I want? And actually the big thing I learned with that mask was don't smile. <laughs> like there's a picture on my Twitter of me, a little backstage picture of me with Michelle Yeoh. And, and I'm just like all smiles having a good time. And it looks so dumb. Like the, the, Tolor's face just looks so I look like a six-year-old you know like I just look like some cherubin kid um so I was like okay the smiling I can't do I was I was finding out like what would happen with my eyebrow movements I was finding out like like okay how much does the tilt of a head communicate so and 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 that was actually something about the wig too that was like that you know looking through these this hair and like how to use those kind of like really i just sort of tried to do as much homework when, before i was on camera about how much i could communicate w- with as little as possible and the biggest thing i found was there's a, there was a nice sneer in that mask and so i sneer pretty much through the entire arc of tolor because it just he's also like not a character that paints with a lot of colors. Like he has a, he's, he's green. (laughs) And so, so that's where like the theatrical background kind of was fun to draw upon. But I will say that once we started shooting, I was very little concerned with my acting and how is my acting can being conveyed because I knew that there, it wasn't my acting that was going to be, doing the the work it was going to be all the other stuff that everybody else had done all the the prosthetics and the wig and the costume and the world and the and the big set of like when we shot for two days in the steel mill like all that stuff not to mention i'm i'm opposite michelle yo like just she's gonna just shine like just she's just gonna be radiant and incredible and every line that comes out of her mouth is solid gold so like pressure's off, pressure was off me. I really just felt like I could just play and have fun. And I felt like I understood my character really well. So I, I knew that if I had an idea that, that, that I could just go for it. Um, Doug Erniakoski, who directed Scavengers, was so like, he gave me so much freedom to ad lib and to make stuff up. And we just found so many moments that, that weren't initially in the script that, that we would then like, maybe I would discover and then bring to bring to, to Doug and, and um, Ernie Kosky, that is not Jones. Um, And, 
and be like, well, I was thinking about this. And he'd say, oh yeah. And then we would explore it further. And, and, and because he um, knows he has time to get it right, that we could, we didn't have to rush, you know? So yeah, the acting of it felt, I never once was like, how's my acting? Cause I knew all the visual effects and the prosthetics and the, the, the world that they've created was going to be far more interesting than what, little I could do acting wise. So <laughs> yeah. It's funny that you mentioned ad-libbing because we've spoken to people who've done other Star Trek shows like in the nineties, early two thousands and ad-libbing was verboten. You just did not do it. So it's interesting to me that you mentioned that you did that on this set. Um, so how did that work? Did you guys just do that when you were actually filming or did you do that? In like, I don't even know if you guys had rehearsals, but uh, how did that actually work? Like CBS Paramount, they were all okay with that. Well, so yeah, I mean, in general, with a show like Star Trek Discovery and 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 the the script is pretty much like obeyed faithfully on on Discovery as well. I went on the show with no intention of ad-libbing. I'm actually the type of person who because I've come up doing Shakespeare, like I stick to the script, you know? Like I'm not going to make it better than Shakespeare so and also you're not going to ad-lib Shakespeare stuff. So I'm 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 you know, there are some TV shows where the, the actors say whatever they, they just make it their They make it their own, you know, in quotations. But, um, but what was interesting was my very first day. So the first shot, and maybe you can help me understand some, some of this. The first shot of mine was the self-stealing, self-stealing stem bolts reference. So what's the, what's the deal with self-stealing, stealing stem bolts? I don't know. I don't understand the reference. Can <laughs> oh, you explain goody, it to right, me? Yeah. So self-stealing stem bolts are from an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. That's where they began. Okay. And I think they're kind of always meant to be a joke. Uh, there's an episode where basically these two characters on the space station, they're like trying to make a deal. Essentially, they're trying to make some money uh, to try and make some profit, if you will. And so they end up like finding out there's like a surplus of these self-sealing stem bolts. And we don't really even really understand what they do at that point. We just know they're stem bolts and they self-seal. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's pretty much the joke because they just get it. And then the episode is essentially about them like taking those stem bolts and then like trading off to get different things to ultimately get what they want. <laughs> so I'm going to have to send you the link to the episode. You can watch it on Netflix later. It's definitely worth checking out. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, do. Because I, I loved how, because like, when I, when I did that scene, I had no idea. Um, and Sonequa that says it, and, and uh, it's actually like her first line of the scene. And that's the first, li- that was my first sh- shot. So um, I'm glad I didn't know, <laughs> but it was funny on Twitter when like, I was like, Oh, I wonder what people think of this episode. And I just kept seeing self ceiling stem bolts. Oh my God. Which I, I get it now. That's a great little Easter egg. Um, but so that was my first scene and I was walking them through the shipyard and there was, I would, I would say there was probably 40 background actors in various alien looks and, and, um, and it's my territory, you know, like it's my yard. And so Doug just kept telling me to ad lib like things to the, to the, to the workers and ad lib, like don't drop that and ad lib. So, which at first kind of made, I didn't make me uncomfortable, but, but at first I just wasn't comfortable owning it yet. Cause it was my very first day. I was, I was opposite Michelle Yeoh. And, and then the funny thing is Michelle, like, she's like, I don't ad lib. I'm not an ad libber. She's like, give me a script and I'll rock it. But like, she's not the type of person to just start making stuff up. And so it ended up being really cute because the more I got comfortable at ad libbing, the more she kind of 
would be like elbow me and be like, stop, stop it. I, I don't, I don't ad lib. And it was like a really nice bonding, like for us when we were just getting to know each other and just shooting that scene. But there was like, you know, like there was, it was little stuff where we'd be walking and I'd be like, so what are you looking for? And they trimmed out a lot of it. I would, or I would, I started to say like, no eye contact to the people that were working. <laughs> and I, st- but what I loved about what Doug did was he, was trying to give me the impulse to own the space, which was great for the character. It was great for what it allowed me to, I feel like it actually allowed me to impact the episode more as Tolor because he gave me this freedom of like, you don't belong here. I belong here. And I, and I, I really think that as a guest actor on a show, the hardest part is feeling like you belong the hardest part is like there's this family of people that all work together and you're just there for a, a few days. And, and, you know, the more you do it, the easier it gets. And, and you also develop relationships with like hair and makeup people and crew people that you then see again on other shows. So you have familiarity. And I never really felt like I had that much of a hard time feeling like I belonged when I came into Star Trek because they're just so welcoming. And, and especially Sonequa as the, as the leader, like she is just so open-armed and genuinely warm to everybody treats you like family right away. But the fact that Doug gave me that permission, all of a sudden, like I would say like the biggest benefit is there's that scene where Lai dies, where he runs through the, he makes Lai run through the fence. And that was like maybe my third or fourth day. There's this wonderful moment that we found that wasn't in the script, which came because Doug gave me freedom to, to make stuff up. And it was when initially the end of that scene was lie runs through the fence, his head explodes. Tolor says, well, I guess it works. And then he walks off and I started ad-libbing as I walked off, like everybody get back to work or like, or, or like, what are you looking at? Get back to work. Or it's just something like, and every time I was walking right past David Ajala who plays book and Tolor and Book never really got much to do except for the one moment where he said where he's sticking up and I tell him to shut up and then he tries to he tries to plead with me and I punched him in the stomach but other than that we're like we don't know these people's relationship and as I started to say get back to work all of a sudden David and I started to talk And we started to realize that there was this perfect opportunity for that face-to-face moment, which to me is like one of my favorite shots in that episode. When, when after Lai's head has exploded, when Tolor says like, well, I guess it works. And he walks away and stops face-to-face with book and has, and knowing that book was friends with this guy, that it hurts him that I killed this guy on a personal level and just really specifically telling him to get back to work, like in that, that wasn't in the script. And like, that's, and that's just something that we found with David and Doug and myself talked about and, and we did versions of it with and versions of it without, you know? And I thought that it really was a great little, it's a little beat, but that's what I loved about being on that show was that that's story. You know, like that's focus on the the overall story we're telling, which is that like it hammers home how much this means to the the hero characters, you know, and that 
by by being flexible and being having time to explore we were able to like deepen and flesh out the the this what the relationship was like between book and Talor who will never meet again and then what's great is there was that just a little that little exchange when when book and and Burnham have finally reunited and they're going over the plan and Talor and Giorgio show up and there's a sort of like are they going to get busted kind of moment and then we just had looks at that point but we had already shot the get back to work moment so for us it just gave us a depth of history, even though it's maybe only been a couple of weeks that these characters have been in each other's sphere, but we just started to explore the backstory of how they felt about each other and what the stakes were for book and what the situation was like. And I loved getting the chance to, uh, it felt like a rehearsal hall in a, when you're putting on a play, you know? where so often when the cameras are rolling, you just have to, you just have to move on and get it. And the fact that on that show, I had that type of Liberty to, to take my time. And, and there's one, another moment too, where Tolor taps on the back of the neck of the, of, of lie right before he sends him out. And we were shooting that scene and shooting it. And there's a lot of moving pieces in that scene. And for me, it, I would, I always called it my peacocking scene. Cause that was sort of the function that it showed in the story was that Tolor is dangerous. You know, it raises the stakes for our heroes to know that this man has the capacity for harm, you know, and we reached the 11 hour mark of the day before we were finished the scene. And so they said, all right, that's it. We'll come back to this tomorrow, which never happens in Canadian television. They're like, no, sorry, we got to keep going till we finish the scene. And so I got to go home and sleep on it, having done the scene and know how it worked out and mapped it out. And I got to think about it like what's deeper, what's more. And it was coming back in the morning with fresh ideas where I was like, Doug, I realize all these things I'm missing. I'm I'm not noticing. I'm doing this to for the effect that it has on people, not because I love it. So I, I'm not noticing people. So there's just these looks that we started to find, just this eye contact. And there's one, and they kept one of them in where I tap on the back of Lai's neck. And then I just look at Burnham and that's it. It's just a look, but they cut to her and it's, and it sort of sinks in and it, it just creates more tension and it just fleshes it out. And, and it's just, it's usually I'll go home and sleep on it after the scene is done. And that's when I have those, 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 you know, Eureka moments and you, but you don't get to film it anymore. So like the fact that on Star Trek, we took our time and yeah. So there's, there's a nice long story for you about, about the, that process. I just love it because Tolar is basically just like this progressing heel. He's doing all these little things that really do mean a lot. Though. Like every little stupid, annoying thing he does, it makes you hate him more. And it makes so much more gravity to all the scenes like he just said. So I love that you got to actually explore that with him. Yeah, I love that you made that analogy that I'm, I'm I, I, that's the first I've heard. And it's exactly true because he's very much an archetype, you know, like he's very much like he, he a pro wrestling heel needs to like hit one note really really well and like that's what i felt about tolor but the writers were so generous with with tolor because they gave they gave me that scene and it didn't not all the scene made it in but there was that scene with osira that that we shot for the sanctuary um it was actually initially like a four page scene and it showed a it showed this other color of tolor that 
was like a bit beyond the wrestling heel, you know, where you got to see him like with his mommy, you know, like with his auntie, but like, and totally just afraid to say the wrong thing. And there was this one really hilarious line um, that got, that didn't get, make the cut, but um, she says something like, do you remember that book I used to read you as a child? And he says, yes. And then she says, you don't do you? And he says, no, I don't. <laughs> like, like, it was just such a fun beat that like in the read through got a huge laugh, but I knew, I knew when I saw the edit that if you get too many laughs, you sort of lower the, the sort of danger level of these characters. And so they kind of, I had think still had to keep the stakes rather high, but that was a fun aspect of Talor to play. Like there was all these moments that like, there's that moment on the, on books ship and scavengers when he's finally found their dilithium and he's like uh, ready to kill them. And, and Burnham says, well, hang on. If your boss found out that you found this dilithium and killed us before finding out where there's more she'd probably kill you and in the in the edit they just cut straight to back to the the action but on the on the day when we shot that scene like she says she says this to me like if you kill us your boss is probably going to be mad and as Talora, i was like damn it you know like, like she got me again you know like and i had all these fun moments of being bested intellectually bested that where i'd be like you know, and not, I, I understood why they didn't include, include all that stuff in the, in the, in the cut, but like the fact that that was in there in the writing that I got to play that, like it was, it was a different kind of villain for sure. So one thing you alluded to earlier in this interview, we haven't really talked about too much in depth yet, but let's, let's change that right now. You get to have a fight scene with Michael Burnham and Michelle Yeoh is having a fight scene as well, parallel to yours. Uh, you mm -hmm. told us it's a pretty interesting challenge to film. So uh, yeah, tell us about that. And it looks like you were taking a bunch of bumps also. So you really were a pro wrestling heel in this case. So you took a, a pretty good judo throw from Sonequa. Yeah. Well, that was my stunt double who took that throw. <laughs> um, don't but, ruin the um, illusion, Ian. Don't ruin the illusion. <laughs> well, Sorry. Sorry. It, the one thing that's good about prosthetics is it's really easy to double people because um, it was remarkable when I saw someone else in the Tolor uh, look. <laughs> but um, but I will say I did do about 95% of that fight. Um, so what was great was, so I have a, a lot of fight history, especially, you know, when you're, you don't do a Shakespeare play without a fight. And um and I've played a lot of warriors and I've just, I've just done a lot of, you know, actor friendly stunts in, in my TV roles and stuff. And so I, I, it's a vocabulary. I really understand. I know my body really well in terms of learning fights. I understand too how slow you need to go to learn something properly. And whereas I think a lot of people, especially men, when they get a, a fight choreography, they just want to do it really cool, really fast. And that's usually when you end up punching somebody by accident and, or, or actually like not properly learning the choreography to the point that it looks good, you know? And, and um, my, there's a fight choreographer that I worked with a lot in my theater days um, whose slogan was always, you have to go slow to go fast, um, which is actually a bit of a good analogy for life, if you ask me. Um, but so, uh, yeah. So what was great was oftentimes in TV, when you have a fight, you will figure it out on the day on the day while you're shooting. 
and you take, you know, you, the stunt coordinator is there and you take an hour to properly work out the fight between the actors. And then you figure out where this, where the doubles need to, but you end up using the doubles more because you don't really have time to teach the actors the fight, but the doubles can like learn it beforehand. Um, um, but on Star Trek, like, you know, because of the standards that they have and that fight was very big. Um, there was a devoted rehearsal to it, like probably a week before we filmed it. And, um, and it was Sonequa, Michelle, myself, the stunt person that Michelle was fighting in, in her fight. And then all of our doubles. And what was great was that, you know, I got to have my double step in to teach Sonequa the fight. And then Sonequa's double could step in to teach me the fight. So we're just like not over, we're not killing ourselves to learn this thing. And then once we were both comfortable enough, then the two of us would fight. And Sonequa is an amazing fighter. She is so like in tune physically with her body and very coordinated. And so like her body control is kind of ideal. And we're both the same in that we love the, the, the challenge of can I, can I do this entire fight without my double having to step in, you know, like, it's so funny because the double is there because actors need to not have whiplash at the end of fighting a scene. Even if they can do the move, like you do it over and over and over again, it's going to, it's going to hurt, hurt. But our egos are like so strong that we're like, no, let me, let me do it. And so Sonequa and I sort of, we bonded a little bit on like that. We kind of were like, you, you like to, you like to do this yourself. Don't you? She, she was like, yeah. I was like, yeah, me too. Me too. And and also like, she could tell, she could tell that, that whoever was coming in for the guest role was somebody who clearly had been in a fight rehearsal before. And I think that's probably nice, you know, to know that like you're in, you, you, you can, you can trust the per the new, the newcomer. And so, yeah, we worked that fight for like half a day. Um, and we worked it in this sort of like uh portable room where there was like cardboard boxes for, to, to give us the like console aspect of things. Cause um, at one point, Michelle, slides under it and one point she jumps over it and then at one point I slam Sonequa up against it and and so we had the cardboard boxes there to give us that reference point um and what I loved about it was that my character's move was just smash and choke smash and choke you know I didn't have to do any sword or gun handling or anything like that like his just whole his whole attempt is to just try to get his hands around her throat and end her um that's his that's his wrestling move you know like and she's constantly getting out of it and um and so then when we did it on the day um we rocked it like we rocked it we felt so proud at the end of shooting that fight both Sonequa and I felt like we um we hit our moves with this precision that that stunt doubles would and also a lot of a lot of what you need to be mindful of is the camera angle and the and the height of your fist you know sometimes you do a you, you punch somebody and if your fist is uh, two inches too low the camera doesn't catch it and it doesn't look good and when you're watching it it just kind of takes you out of the moment but there was the one moment where he does get body slammed and i have enough experience to know not to take a body slam three or four times when I'm uh, not 
trained professionally to do it. So I let my double do that move over and over again. And, and then there's the one where he also choke slams uh, Burnham. That was also my stunt double, sadly, but they weren't about to let me do that. <laughs> I'm not choke slamming uh, anybody. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know if this is intentional or not, but I don't know if you're aware. One of the other people to play and Orion previously was the big show from WWF. And, yeah, uh, I, and his, I do. I am on Enterprise, right? Yep, yep. And his signature move is the choke slam. So I kind of found it funny. Like, did they include oh. it as like a little bit of an Easter egg, maybe? <laughs> Uh, maybe, I mean, I don't know. I, I have no, I can't confirm nor deny that. <laughs> That's my theory. So I'm going to run with it. I think it uh, was so run with stick it, with run it. with it. Why not? <laughs> You're doing these fight scenes with Michelle. And we also can't ignore the fact that she has a very serious background in Hong Kong cinema, doing a lot of action work. Yeah. I can't forget crouching tiger, yeah. hidden dragon, for example. Uh, so when you guys are doing this fight scene, is she giving you any suggestions on how to take strikes or how to do anything? Or is she kind of just sitting back and letting the, the people do their work? You know what? Yeah, like a little bit of both. She had this perfect balance of letting it all happen. And then a couple of times she just gave me like a physical um, tip of how to sell something. Um, uh, Like sometimes it would be as simple as what you're doing with your other hand. Like when I was choking her, I was so focused on this that like my other hand would be weird or limp and just cinematically it didn't look good. And if if this was a play it wouldn't be a big thing from an audience and you're sitting in a crowd, but on camera it does. And so she would give me those things. Cause the thing about her is that like, she didn't grow up studying martial arts. She was a dancer. So she's, it's not that she just had the martial arts background to do in these movies. It's that she understood, she knew her body so well and she had amazing body control. So she could learn this stuff like choreography and execute it like boom. And and she still can, like, even in the last episode, they showed her doing some pretty awesome shit, you know, uh, stuff. Um, sorry. Um, and so she would say these little things to me that were like about body control and about, about how to sell it. And, uh, and she was, and I think she also knew that my ego wouldn't be threatened by being given notes by a fellow actor. And I was very vocal to her of like any time you have a suggestion for me, I am so all ears, but actors have to be careful about that stuff because there's a lot of strong personalities. Everyone has a different process. Some really wonderful experienced actors don't want other actors telling them ideas. They just, they just don't want to have that relationship. And I'm not one of those people. I will take an idea anytime I can. And if it doesn't work, then I won't do it. But at least like an idea is always worth worth taking in. So yeah, Michelle was great. And then I also like got to get finished off by her. She kicks me in the head to finish it. And I was very honored um, that, that I was getting, getting a roundhouse kick to the face by the one and only. And when she shot that it, they didn't really use the shot for that moment um, in the, in the, in the, in the fight, but there was a couple of shots where she did, where she did a roundhouse kick and my double, it was just like over his head and he would then flip over and like do a sort of like, I've been, I've been finished. And, um, and it was just like art watching her. Like she did it once and they're like, no, your foot needs to be higher. She did it twice. No, your foot not, it needs to be higher. She came back to the monitor, watched the playback on what was visually being seen that she was getting the note on so she could see it for herself and then went back and 
freaking nailed it and just like hit the, the right angle. And it was like, basically like her foot came up, went across like that. It was perfect. I don't think they ended up needing that, that move to finish the fight. Um, but it was just so cool to watch her work in that, in that arena and how, how well she just knew herself and was confident about it, but could take a suggestion as well. And yeah, she's a consummate pro. So spoiler alert for anybody who doesn't know yet, if you don't, I don't know what you're doing to listen to this interview today, but uh, Tolar does come back for one appearance again, as we mentioned in the sanctuary, he doesn't quite make it out of that one to one piece. So yeah, your yeah. character gets eaten alive by a trance worm. How, how'd that yeah. go for you? Oh, well, it was hard. It was hard when I first read that, that scene because I was, as I said, I was starting to really enjoy myself and uh, I have told this story a little bit, but I'll tell it again. Um, so I was sitting in, um, we were using the ready room, uh, the captain's ready room as our, just our, our waiting area when we were shooting on books ship, um, which is a nice little tidbit. Like any sets that aren't being used are like comfy places for actors to hang out while they wait, while they wait for a scene to, sh- to be shot. And um, it's sort of like in a neighboring sound stage, they have like eight, five or five to eight sound stages going at once on that show. And so, we were sitting in the ready room, just just getting to know each other, and 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 we did a lot of that, a lot of just talking and getting to know each other, and that's a great thing about Sonequa is that she's like really makes an effort to like find out who the people are that are coming onto the show and working, and and that's quite rare, I think, for a lead to put that much energy into getting to know everyone, even if you're just going to be gone in a week, you know. And so we were talking and then she asked me, so what's going on with Tolor? Like, what is the, what's going to happen with your character? And at that point, I didn't know we were shooting scavengers and I hadn't seen a script yet for sanctuary. I knew, I knew I wasn't going to be in episode seven, but they had been holding me for episode eight. And I said, I don't know. I'm my agent hasn't gotten a script yet. I haven't gotten a script yet. I know I'm not high on the list for early drafts of the script but you know who is high on the list for early draft of the script? Sonequa Martin-Green. So she was sitting there. She said, well, actually, I just got the new script in my inbox. And she opens it up. And the first line of the script was my line. And, and she showed it to me. And I flipped through it. And initially, that scene with Osira and Tolor was the first it was the opening of the episode, which they had talked about was the, they had never done that. They've always ep- started the episode with the, with the discovery crew. And I was like, wow, but they were really trying to like serve up this Osira introduction, you know? And, and I suspected that Tolor initially probably died in epi- in scavengers in that fight. And then I, and then of course it's so easy for them to save someone's life by just tapping a button and they teleport out of there that I think they decided to keep me around to introduce Osira. And so this scene was so, like I mentioned, it was about four pages and it had, it had like all this comedy and it just was like gold. Like it just was gold. And I was loving it. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm starting this episode. Like, what are they going to do with Tolor? And then I get to page four and it, and it tells me that he got devoured by a trans, trans worm. And, um, and that was so bittersweet because the scene itself was like by far one of the most exciting things I'd read in terms of like when you go on and you just do one guest star, you have the script and you know, what's going to happen. And there's something really exciting about not knowing what's 
what's happening in the next episode. What's my character going to get to do? What's he going to get to say? What's, what's going to happen? Like when you do theater, you do the same play every night. There's no chance of a new journey. And there's something so exciting about getting that script. And then of course, to get to page four and you realize, Oh, my journey is about to come to an end. So that was bittersweet. But then I found out, then I found out it was going to be Jonathan Frakes directing and that was exciting. And he was actually there on set that same day, just visiting uh, to say hi while he was prepping for, for our episode. And, and, uh, and so I got to have fun. I got to, I got to work with Janet Kidder and she's incredible. And I'm ex- really excited for the audience to see more of Osira. Cause I just think she's quite a wonderful actor and anybody who doesn't know her work is going to know, like in the Star Trek fandom is going to know her now. And, um, and then I got to do that cool death scene, which was, you know, they built that, that, that transworm tank, this sort of like Sarlacc pit or whatever it is. Um, not a Sarlacc pit. Uh, uh, it's a oh, bad Star pit. Wars reference. They, yeah. The Rancor. That's it. Um, it was very much a Rancor pit, even though I know it's blasphemy to do a Star Wars reference on a Star Trek. Sorry, everyone. Oh, well, this one time it's okay. <laughs> this one time. Um, but um like the slime on it was so cool. And just like the lighting of it was so great that like green light coming through the grate behind me and, and the, and the like overhead grates as well. And the DP was really like, he was really hands-on with me about making sure that I could feel it in my eyes when I was in a shadow and when I was in the light and try to try to be like halfway and, but make sure my eyes are caught and, and so we shot that and it was really funny because we could just make it up. It was like, there was no transform there. We were just, I was just acting with empty space. And, uh, you know, it's funny. There was a bit of feedback on Twitter about that. I didn't seem like I was in a trance. So it's interesting because like there, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about like what the trance was. I just, I had imagined something in my head about the fact that it, it just, like it just drew him in and he lost control of his ability to like, to like run away, but it didn't take away the terror or the fear or the pain, you know, like, and, um, and, but Jonathan kept yelling at me from off stage. You're not afraid. You're not afraid. And this is a funny untold story because for some reason I kept thinking he was saying, like telling me Ian to not be afraid to just go for it, like to not to just go balls out, which is silly because of course I'm going to go balls out. Like I'm not going to back down from that, but he was actually telling that Tolor was going to act like he, I'm fine. I'm not afraid. But for me, I really wanted to explore this bully character now when he's like, like whimpering and, and, and simpering and being like, please don't hurt me, you know? And so I, he obviously was happy with what I was doing or he would have told me to change it. But like, yeah, I, I feel like maybe part of what I, what a, you're not afraid was also maybe like you're in a trance. <laughs> so it turned out the way it turned out, which I was like, I loved watching myself get devoured like that. It was pretty cool when it's all CGI like that. And you just don't know what it's going to look like. It, that That's pretty cool. The the whole effect of the, of the transworm in general was like, it looked pretty awesome. So 
the fact that I got to go out that way was definitely worth it. And and if you're going to die, make your death count and make the audience sort of miss you. And I felt like that was the case with Tolor. Like he was such a blowhard guy. You kind of roll your eyes, everything that comes out of his mouth. But once he was gone, he was missed. <laughs> Well, the great thing about doing a part in Star Trek, we've got a lot of prosthetics on, is there's always a high probability that you can, in fact, come back. So maybe not as Tolar, but hopefully we'll see Ian Lake again in uh, Discovery or Strange New Worlds or Section 31. Who knows? They're filming Strange New Worlds here in Toronto. They're, the Discovery is going to continue on for, I think, I think Discovery will be on the air for a long time and there's going to be chances. And then I, I, I've, I've, I've actually don't think it's been confirmed yet that Section 31 is filming in Toronto, but I, I, I think that's rumored. Um, or maybe to be determined. Um, uh, and so my hope is that um, when I was on set, when I was on set for shooting that they had just announced that section 31 was going to be uh, a show they were making. And so there was, I was, I was sort of, there was a lot of like, well, you'll be back sort of chatter when I was leaving it. And, and I, and I was thinking like, yeah, well, or maybe as like a guest alien on, on discovery, or maybe give me like a lead character on one of your new shows. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> but yeah, there's definitely enough filming here in Toronto in the Trek world that I think the chances of me returning to the, to the, fo- to the fold are, uh, are are high so the consensus i've gotten from any of the people who performed on star trek discovery is that it's one of the best if not the best ever set that they've worked on it sounds like you share that experience yeah i mean and i will just say it it all comes down to sonequa martin green because she is the embodiment of love like she is she's a person of deep faith and she's got a lot of um energy for giving love to people and appreciation and treating people with respect and dignity. And is there something that happens when basically a a show will trickle down from the behavior of its lead actor. And if you have a lead actor who, who behaves that way and treats everybody that way, it's a lot harder for anyone else to feel like they can justify a different kind of behavior. And so everybody there is just all love and it allows the work to be really good. Like it, it doesn't take away from the productivity. It doesn't take away from the sharpness that everyone is like attacking the work with, but it just, I, I I've never seen anything like it where you can literally see it trickling down to the other departments. And I even had a moment where I was next to Sonequa and something happened that frustrated me. That was a mistake that was about something I cared about. And maybe if I had been sitting next to a lead actor who was a little more like, like rough with people or a little more short with people, I might've felt like I could make a stand for the thing that was frustrating me. But instead I was sitting next to Sonequa and I, and I just like her, like what would Sonequa do kind of washed over me. And I just, I just handled the mistake that had been made. Like, it's fine. We, it's a mistake. We all make mistakes. Don't worry about it. Well, it's fine. Like the person who made the mistake was super apologetic because they could tell, uh, like I, I was a little upset and, and, um, and it was just like, for me, I had no real reason to be upset just except for like the tension I carry from really wanting to do a great job and wanting everything to go super well. And it was just this great moment where I, I, I've learned the the valuable lesson of having a lead leader like Sonequa where I said, no, I can treat this person with compassion and kindness because there's, it's better to do that. It, it, it's, it does, it gets us further along to do that. And so, yeah, I'm glad that that's the, 
the report from most people on, on discovery. And I have no idea that um, the other shows will probably be like that as well, because I think it's, it's going to sort of become part of a tree, you know, like it's going to branch off and yeah. Yeah. We'll see. So Ian, last question of the day. What is the best thing about being a part of the star Trek universe? Um, The best thing, you know, I'd honestly, this is going to sound like I'm catering, but at the fans, it's really been fun to be embraced by the, the, the Trek fans and to be included. It really does feel like a family. And my brother is a big Star Trek fan. So I, I, I've always had a, um, a bit more of an intimate sense of what Star Trek can mean to people. It's never been that to me, even though I, I do love and appreciate it. I've, I've got a strong sense of that. It, it is, it is a deep place of belonging for a lot of people. And uh, I've really enjoyed getting to receive that and get, get, you know, asked to do these kind of podcasts and also just like exchanging messages with people. I've really sort of let myself kind of dive in and reply to messages and, and just engage because most TV shows and most jobs you have don't have a, a fan base like, like this one. And that's by far been the most, the most fun. And, you know, it's a shame that this, this didn't come out at a time when conventions are, are, are happening. Cause I, you know, like the, the engagement in that aspect is, is, is something I really would love to, to get involved in. And I know there's still time and it'll, it'll happen, but yeah, definitely the, the fan experience has been really cool. Yeah. And I do just want to thank you again, because you've been so great with all the fans. You've been super accessible and receptive to interaction with the fans. So, uh, you know, thank you for doing that. And also just for folks who now want to do follow you, how can they find you on the social? Uh, on the social, I am Ian Lake at Ian Lake at, on Twitter, and I'm at Ian H Lake on Instagram. And I don't really mess with any other socials. So yeah, Ian, thank you so much today for your time. It's been real great hearing all these stories. I just love how enthusiastic you are, and how much you know. You, I think you're becoming a Trekkie. I think out of this interview, I get the feeling you're going to be watching a lot more Star Trek. I am. Well, I love research too. So like now I'm, I'm, especially now that I'm like understanding the Easter eggs and I am understanding the references of past franchises and stuff. I'm, 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 I'm curious. And also just seeing the style of Trek over the years and how it's been filmed and acted and stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm now more curious about that too. So whenever I'm, whenever I'm watching TV and, and, and there's an episode of DS nine or something like that, I'm now going like, Oh, let me check this out. <laughs> At the very least, we've now unraveled the mystery of self-sealing stem bolts. That's what matters indeed, most. <laughs> indeed, indeed, yeah. Ian, thank you so much again. It's been wonderful. Uh, I look forward to hopefully chatting with you again, and hopefully we will see you again, because uh, fingers crossed you make it on some new track shows in the future. Fingers crossed, yeah. And there's, there's, I've got some some stuff coming up in the new year that uh, that when I'm at liberty to discuss, I will share with the fans. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to start shooting another TV show Um in uh january or february and um so hopefully by the time by the time uh that that time comes i may maybe be able to say something about it <laughs> all right awesome yeah so, ian thank you so much it's been great speaking with you and uh you too matthew live long and prosper as they say <laughs> uh, live long and prosper or whatever the orions say to uh to sign off i, I don't know what they say uh so long meet sack or something like that uh, that works for me yeah <laughs> All right. Take care, Matthew. And that was our chat with Ian Lake. Lots of great insight and someone that I do hope we get to see return again to the Star Trek franchise. There's a whole lot of more aliens that he can play, so hopefully we'll see him pop up again.
The Orions first appeared in the very first episode of Star Trek The Cage, which was filmed in late 1964. The character of Vina, played by Susan Oliver, became an Orion during an illusion caused by the Talosians. Susan had her makeup applied by the famous Fred Phillips, although it was actually Majel Barrett who did the first screen test in the makeup because, well, quite simply, they couldn't afford to have Susan come back on just to do that. The production team tried multiple times to paint Majel, but each time the footage came back, her skin wasn't visible on screen. After three days and trying multiple different types of green paints, the team realized that the film processing lab was actually decolorizing her because they didn't know she was meant to be green and they were likely removing the chroma for keying special effects in later. During filming of that pilot episode, Susan became very fatigued while she was painted up, and a doctor was called on set to give her a shot of vitamin B. However, when that doctor showed up, he wasn't aware he was about to give an injection to an alien, and as you can imagine, was very confused when he saw his patient. It took him a few minutes to gather himself, but ultimately he was able to give her the shot, and filming continued, and as they say, the rest is history. So that wraps up this week's episode of Trek Untold. Thank you so much for checking it out this week. Please make sure that you're following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Trek Untold. That's one word, no spaces, at Trek Untold. It's the best way to get updates on guests, check out all the memes and other things that we're posting, and interact with myself and other Star Trek fans. If you'd like to support this podcast, go ahead and check out patreon.com slash trekuntold and become a subscriber to the show. Or check out teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold to check out some of our merchandise. If you've been enjoying Trek Untold, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to podcasts. And if you're on YouTube, please give the video a thumbs up and subscribe to our channel, youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday. Leaving ratings, reviews, and comments are things that all help this podcast grow, and they'll cost you nothing but a few seconds of your time. Doing things like that, or even telling your friends or other Star Trek fans about the stuff you've heard on the show and making sure they know about us are huge helps to keeping Trek Untold growing. Thank you once again to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. Go ahead and check them out at triple-fictionproductions.net. If you'd like to send us some feedback about this episode, suggest a guest, or ask to be booked on the show, go ahead and send me an email at trekuntold at gmail.com. And of course, thanks to listeners like you for choosing Trek Untold and making it your weekly Star Trek podcast. This has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today. 